I think for any person who is trying to, one, be intentional about getting into a relationship, period, but also marriage, uh, is you should be aware of who you are in Christ. Yeah. Um, okay. It will ideally shape every facet of uh, how, you, how you love. A fruitful and healthy relationship is one that is designed by God and not by us. It's Christ in me, Christ strengthening me to be able to endure, persevere, be available, cultivate relationships. All the things that you need in your life to be who Christ has designed you to be. It's not about me, it's about what Christ is doing in my life and how I am able to endure that life and share that life with somebody else. If my left hand is, is me and my right hand is Christ and I accept Christ in my life, I become this, that nothing can separate me from the love of God, nothing. Not even a conversation with my wife where she knows me so well where I can feel shame. I can feel I have so messed up and I, why in the world would you want to be married to me? And when I get into that kind of space, I'm not helping anybody. But when I remember that this is who I am, that I am loved of God, I am loved of Christ, and nothing can separate me, I am a loved person, that empowers me to be in those difficult conversations. I can actually think, okay, Lord, it's you and me in this. I'm okay. Even when hard things are being said. It's been very important for me in, in, in my ability to love my wife. God knows the heart of people better than we will ever know the heart of people. So whether it's your best friend or your boyfriend or girlfriend or husband or wife or sister, like being close to Jesus will only benefit your relationship. If you are both seeking him in that way, that's where like the mutual service to another comes in. Like to even be able to have eyes to see another person as Jesus sees them. Um, yeah, I think it's just, I would say the friendship of Jesus is the most transferable thing. Like no matter what your life looks like, that will only benefit you no matter what gets added, you know, a spouse, children, vocation. Uh, I, was, I was growing in my relationship with the Lord as opposed to just doing the laws and following the laws of the Bible. You will fail, you will make mistakes, you will mess up, but you know that you can always go back to Him and say, God, I messed up. That's kind of been a recurring um, theme in my life where I have a, an expectation of what it's gonna look like and then God just comes in and says, no, I have this for you and it's better and it's better than anything you could imagine. Um, but that all starts with a relationship with Jesus and investing in that first. And I think once you invest in that relationship, like it was undeniable that he was the guy for me. So that would be my hope and prayer for anyone who so desperately wants marriage or who so desperately wants to be in a relationship and family and wants that for their future is to just invest wholeheartedly into Jesus first. Making sure that you're both pursuing Jesus more than you're pursuing each other. Yeah, marriage can easily become God. <laughs> it could easily become an idol. And so um, to fight to not make that an idol is, um, I think, been really important in our relationship and wrestling with the issues that we brought into marriage. God quickly took those issues away from us because we did fight for it and, and we did fight to constantly um, bring each other to Christ, but also push each other 
to be better people and to um, live in love like Jesus. One of the things that's wonderful is that even during that time, I remember you were so steadfast and you even shared at one point with me, you're like, I need to be faithful to the Lord over you. And I remember that being hard to hear, which was like, also, I knew I was struggling to hear that. And that ate me up because <laughs> I'm like, that's good. I, I was I was ashamed of myself. That's so good. I want her to want the Lord more than me. But I don't trust him because <laughs> I want her. And uh, you prayed so much for my heart. God was faithful to her prayers. And, and that is a pattern that has continued. I've just seen the faithfulness of God and like how he has cultivated such a friendship between, you know, myself and Jesus over the years that now when I'm dating, it's like, wow, like I'm looking at this man and I'm going, okay, do you remind me of Jesus? Christ is, a, as you can see, you confess Christ as your Lord and Savior together and you worship together and the community is all shared together. That is really facilitates getting through all kinds of things that happen in marriage. Um, so that common ground and just common faith, you share the same faith, is, 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 is very important. The purpose of our marriage is not to be ingrown, but to be outward, mm -hmm. to love each mm -hmm. other in such a way that the world sees God in our love for one another. And that's only going to happen if we yeah. love God first. Yeah. For me, I think the legacy that I would like to see is that people looked at us and said those people love Jesus and that they made each other better in Jesus. You know, Dave mentioned that we don't have kids yet. Like we, we do want to have kids, but we actually really want to adopt or foster kids. I would love to have part of our legacy be like, we got to love kids that needed that love at that time, you know, and, and that we got to be those people who got to show them Jesus. What I would want to just to share with YA people is um, you are so intensely beyond words love of God that the, you've, you hear it all the time here at Calvary, you know, that the, the, the God loves you in Christ who died for you and then rose for you and has life in mind for you that begins, your eternal life begins the moment you say yes to Christ. And that is who you are. And, and, and this, one more thing, then I'll, I'll stop, is our identities in Christ are unclear to us and that's okay. That's okay because we don't know who we are, but we can trust him because he knows who we are and we can live into that. And it'll get clearer to us as we go along, as we roll along. I guess that's been my experience that I've, I've gotten clearer about who I am, but I don't, I don't have it all like nailed. And I'm okay with that because he knows who I am. And just to get on with life because you can trust him with your identity and you are beloved of God. All right, good evening, everyone. If you have a Bible with you, go ahead and grab that right now. We're gonna be in Revelation chapter 21, the second to last chapter of the Bible. So just flip all the way to the end and then just give it one more turn and you'll be back there, Revelation chapter 21. Uh, if you're here with us tonight in the room, um, so many of the peoples who, who people who did those videos that we got to watch over the last nine weeks are here in this space or will hear this. Can we just give them some appreciation for sharing their story, uh, being a part of what we've done the last couple months? 
Uh, we are going to wrap up our teaching series on relationships tonight, and we're going to move on to something different next week. Uh, but as we do, I just want to take a moment to reflect um, really on where all of this has been heading, really where what all of this is about, uh, and, and really the pattern we laid out is that this is a teaching series about singleness, about dating, about marriage, and about sex. Uh, and so we've covered all of those topics, and we've thought biblically and deeply, and at times challengingly, uh, about those subjects. Uh, and as we wrap up tonight, I want to just give us something to ponder as we go forward and continue to think about the God who created us to be these romantic sexual beings who long for something and yet don't always attain it. So here's what we're going to do. I want to start with a question, and this is a question for everyone in the room. should be easy enough. Would you raise your hand or make some noise if already this summer, or if you're planning to this summer, so already been this summer or planning on this summer, if you have been or are planning to go to a wedding? Anyone? Wedding season? Okay, all right. Across the board, some of you are like, didn't get the invite. It's cool. We love you too. Um, but I want to reflect on weddings, and part of it is over the last month, I've had the privilege of being at or being a part of three different weddings, and some of you will recognize some of these folks. The first wedding in the last month I went to uh, was that of Ian and Kimmy Gregory. Uh, yeah, we love Ian and Kimmy. They got married twice. Uh, they got married early COVID in one of those like backyard weddings where it was 10 of them, and then decided to just roll it again, and so Ian and Kimmy married. The second couple I got to be a part of, again, we've talked about this before, but many of you know, JD and Paulina Lasky. Yeah, we're so pumped for them uh, to see them married. Such a privilege. And then just this last weekend, um, some of you will know this couple that grew up here at this church. Here is Paul and Cassidy Hippler. Um, and so, okay, okay few, few of you know them, but, but hey, we're so thrilled uh, for their wedding. And so over the last month, it's just kind of been wedding season for me. And then I got this strange thing where I don't have any more weddings this summer. So like my suit is all like messy. My tux is all done. It's all going to the dry cleaners and I'm kind of out of weddings. But I've been thinking about weddings a ton this last month. I've been a part of them. I've been officiating them. I've been a part of them. And here's what I've been thinking about, a strange story. And it's a strange story to think about when it comes to weddings, because weddings are all about permanence. Like you're together happily ever after. This is your wedding, and this is you together until death do you part. And yet I found myself thinking about this strange story in the book of Matthew, where, where these religious leaders confront Jesus. These Sadducees confront Jesus, and they say, Jesus, we got a trick for you. Let's imagine someone gets married, and then that someone dies, and that someone has six brothers, and those six brothers all marry the same woman. So super strange TV show movie that you could create someday, but here's the question they set up. The question is, if seven men marry one woman in this world, which of them gets to be married to her in heaven? So they think they've got Jesus set up for a question he can never possibly answer. In other words, when the resurrection comes, when heaven comes, who's going to be married to this one woman? Is it the oldest? Is it the youngest? Is it one of them in between? And here's what Jesus says. He gives a fascinating answer. And here's the verse that's been rolling around in my head as I've been doing and participating in these weddings this month. Matthew chapter 22 says this. Jesus says, at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. Like, let's look at this verse. At the resurrection, like in heaven, when everything is made new, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. So here's a fascinating thought. I've been standing here all this time at these weddings, being a part of all these weddings in this last month, and here's what's been running through my mind. What's been running through my mind is Jesus' claim that in, in heaven, there is no more marriage. In heaven, marriage will be a thing of the past. Now listen, here's what I believe based on the teaching of the scripture. I don't think that means I won't recognize my wife. 
I think I'll know my wife, Danny, and I'll see her and I'll remember that we were married. I won't be like, I recognize you from somewhere. Like, I'll know. But here's what I know in heaven. Marriage will be a thing of the past. Being married, being husband and wife won't be a thing that exists in all of eternity. Like, let me put it to you this way tonight, in light of the teaching series that we're wrapping up, that singleness, dating, marriage, and sex are all temporary. They're temporary. Everything we've talked about for the last nine weeks, it is not a permanent reality. It is a temporary reality. And it will only be a reality for us as human beings until Jesus comes. And that's what I want to close out this series talking about. I want to talk about what happens until Jesus comes, until the second coming of Christ, until Jesus comes to make all things new, to judge the living and the dead, and end history as we know it today. That's what's going to bring us to the book of Revelation. I want to talk about kind of how we perceive dating and singleness and sex and marriage until Jesus comes. We'll come to the book of Revelation here. Now let me just recap the book of Revelation real quick. Uh, The book of Revelation, for so many, this last book of the Bible is confusing and difficult and hard. If I could just summarize the book of Revelation in two words, it's this. It's God wins. God wins. Uh, The book of Revelation shows the wickedness and the corrupt nature of humanity and all of the people who war against God. And the simple message of the book of Revelation is that in the end, God is in control. God wins. God reigns. God saves. God rescues. And so all throughout the book of Revelation, you'll see all this cryptic imagery that culminates in Revelation chapter 19, where the sky is cracked and Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead. And he defeats all of his enemies without even a fight. Jesus puts all of them in their place. And then here's what the scriptures are going to tell us. Once death and sin and hell and the devil himself have been defeated, what's going to happen is that God is going to make everything new. And that's what I want you to see here in the second to last chapter of the Bible. Revelation 21 verse 1 says this. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Now the first question I always get when I teach this text is always actually the last part here. Like there's this miraculous resurrection of heaven and earth, and people are like, so there's no ocean? No surfing in heaven? How's that going to work? And here's my answer. I think there's likely going to be water in heaven. In the ancient world, the sea was always where bad things came from. So every time you looked out at the ocean in the ancient world, it wasn't like us. We're like, I love the ocean. They're like, ocean, bad place. Ships come, they bring armies and kill all of us. That's the bad place, okay? Here's what this means. It means that the wickedness, the unknown of the world is gone. But here's what's important. There's a new heaven and a new earth. Now in the Greek language, as it might surprise you to learn, there are two words for new. There's the word chronos, where we get chronology. It is the idea of time. It is like me saying I got a new car. If I said I got a new car, you would assume I got rid of the old car and I went and got myself a new car. There's also a second word for new in the Greek language that translates into English, and that is the word kainos. Kainos is different than chronos. Chronos means here's a brand new thing. Kainos is more like our word for remodel. Like if your parents ever remodeled their kitchen, that's what kainos is. So it's like the same thing, but it's better. It's a new kitchen but it's kind of like the old kitchen. The best metaphor I could give here in the biblical text is the story of Jesus. Jesus dies, he lays in the grave, and in case you don't know the end of the story, he comes up from the grave, he resurrects from the dead, and his body is the same, and yet it's kind of different. He has a new body, but it's the same body. See, resurrection takes this old body of Jesus and raises it to its glorious state. 
And here's the teaching of the 21st chapter of the book of Revelation, is that in the end, after Jesus returns, there is a new heaven and a new earth, a kainos heaven and a kainos earth. In other words, let me put it this way, God will resurrect all of creation just like he resurrected Jesus. I don't want anyone in this room to be confused. See, in our culture, for some reason or another, it's become convinced that heaven is the place your soul floats away to like Casper the ghost, and then you spend all of eternity bouncing on a cloud, sort of being with Jesus, and that sounds like fun. That's not it. That's not heaven. I want you to know that heaven is physical. It is resurrected reality. In heaven, we will eat and drink and have bodies and walk and talk and live together in a newly created earth. Like, let me put it this way. Westlake Village will be here in heaven. Hume Lake will be here in heaven. Hawaii will be here in heaven, okay? No idea how awesome that's gonna be, but every beautiful, wonderful part of our world will be resurrected in God's new creation. And so this is what heaven looks like. Heaven's not this disembodied state where we kind of float away to some other place. No, the image in the Bible is that heaven comes here. Earth is resurrected just like Jesus's body was. So heaven is physical. And your question might be, so Brian, what are we gonna do in this physical heaven? If there's like a physical resurrected heaven and earth, what are we supposed to do? And I love when you ask questions that are right here in my notes. Next verse, verse two. John says this, he says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. Again, heaven invading earth, resurrecting earth. And then watch this, it said, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And this is what I want to narrow in our attention on today. There is heaven, the holy city, and the new Jerusalem invading earth, resurrecting earth. And how is heaven described? Heaven is described as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. Let me just tell you something wonderful and wild about the Bible. A few weeks ago, I preached on Genesis chapter 2. And I told you that the Adam and Eve story, one of the first stories in the Bible was the story of the first two human beings, the first, two, the first romance, and ultimately, the first wedding. I want you to know that the Bible begins with a wedding, and listen to me, the Bible ends with a wedding. This is a beautiful thought. If anyone ever asks you, how does the Bible end? What's the last page of the Bible? The answer is, there's a wedding. And the wedding has two participants. The first is the church, the church is the bride. Do you know that all throughout the scriptures, the people of God, whether it be the Old Testament Israel or the church, are almost exclusively referred to as a bride, as she, as a female. The church is the bride, and it is this glorious bride dressed for her husband. And then there's a second participant, and that's Jesus. Jesus is the groom. Jesus is the groom who is marrying his bride. This is how the end of time, all of eternity and heaven is represented it's represented as a wedding. And I think there's something fascinating for us to linger on here as we think about the weddings we've been to or the weddings we will be going to in the future. And what I wanna do right now for this entire sermon is just slow down and consider the reality that heaven is a wedding, that earth begins with the wedding, the bookends of the Bible is a wedding, and I think God has something to speak to us tonight about weddings. Here's what I wanna do. I wanna give you 10 things to notice and 10 things to remember at every wedding. I just wanna lay my cards on the table. I wanna change how you think about weddings. I wanna change how you go to weddings. When you're sitting at weddings this summer or next fall or the summer after that, I wanna change how you think about the experience at a wedding. 
Because you start to go to enough weddings and it starts to become kind of rote, like, okay, do you, do you, kiss her, let's have cake, right? Like, it just becomes that. And here's what I want to do tonight. I want to change the way you look at weddings. Because if it's true that the Bible begins with a wedding and ends with a wedding, if heaven is described as a wedding, I want you to see, I want you to see every single wedding, whether it's a Christian wedding or not, even if it's a totally secular wedding, I want you to see that God has given us weddings. In fact, I would even suggest giving us romance, sex, dating, and marriage so that when we look at a wedding, we can anticipate the reality of heaven. Tonight, I want to change the way you look at weddings. Here's number one. The first thing I want you to notice and remember at every wedding. First, I want you to notice the ring on the bride's finger and remember that Jesus willing... Oh, no, I went to the second one. (laughs) All right, first one. I want you to notice the anticipation of the wedding and remember that it is good for us to long to heaven for heaven. I want you to notice the anticipation. Have you ever known someone who's getting married? Actually, who here right now knows someone who is engaged and is getting ready to get married? Anyone? All across the room, okay? Here's what you know. That person probably has a countdown. Probably a little app on their phone. They know it. The smart math people really like just know it up in their head. But most of us have a little countdown going. There's anticipation, there's excitement. We're 100 days away, we're 20 days away, we're two weeks away, we're three days away from the wedding. There's this anticipation. Even if you're not getting married, you're part of that anticipation. You see your buddy who's getting married, you're like, hey, three weeks till you're married, six weeks till you're married. There's an anticipation for the wedding. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to see that anticipation and remember that as a Christian, that should be the feeling, emotion, and excitement we have for heaven. The Bible tells us this, that this earth is not our home. This is not where we belong. We belong in heaven, this resurrected state. And the Bible doesn't shame you for thinking about heaven. The Bible doesn't say, well, don't worry about heaven, live your life now. No, the Bible wants you to be excited and longing, desiring, the scriptures say, for heaven. So every time you see a bride who knows exactly how long it is till her wedding, every time you see a groom who just can't wait to be with his bride forever, I want you to know that the Bible encourages you to think about, to long for heaven. I've heard the phrase before that this person is so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. And I think I get the phrase. I think you're trying to say, well, this person thinks so much about heaven, they never think about the earth. But the Bible doesn't actually give us that phrase. What the Bible says is the more I long for heaven, the more I'll be useful in this world because I recognize that this world is not my home and it's not forever I want you to notice the next time you do a countdown toward a wedding and remember that that longing, that anticipation toward that wedding is just a reflection of what God wants for you to think about heaven. Here's the second one. I started reading it. Oops. Uh, Number two, I want you to notice the ring on the bride's finger and remember that Jesus willingly paid the price for your salvation. In our culture, in the Western culture, really a wedding actually begins with an engagement, a proposal. And what it begins with was the man going out and buying a ring and then offering that ring as a gift to the woman of his intention to marry her. Not in every culture is there a ring or a diamond, but every culture seems to have the same thing embedded in it when it comes to marriage. It seems to have this idea that what we're called to do is the man is called to go out and gain some resources, and then he's called to do three things. He's called to initiate the marriage, he is called to sacrifice for the marriage, And then he is called to humble himself in asking for the marriage, right? He initiates, he goes and buys the ring. He sacrifices money, wealth, possessions for him to get the ring. And then what does a man do? He humbles himself and initiates the marriage relationship. Every single time you see a wedding ring, 
Every single time one of your friends gets engaged, every single time you get together with her and she just got engaged and you're all freaking out and you do, show us, show us, right? That thing, that thing, don't act like you don't do it. Okay, every time you do that, here's what I want you to remember. Jesus initiated. Like, can I tell you the good news of the gospel is that God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Like, you know, the whole point of the gospel is that God wanted you before you wanted him. He saw you in your sin. He said, I'll come get you. I'll come rescue you. I'll come save you. God initiates. And then what does God do? God sacrifices. He sacrifices himself on the cross. Like the whole gospel message is that Jesus paid a price he did not owe because you owed a debt you could not pay. That's the whole gospel message. Jesus initiates. Jesus sacrifices. And then what does Jesus do? Jesus humbles himself. The scriptures say he humbles himself even to death and death on a cross so that he might rescue and save and redeem you. Listen, every time you see a ring on a woman's hand, every time you see an engagement ring, a wedding ring, would you remember that that is meant to point your heart and focus your mind on the sacrifice that Jesus willingly gave for your sins and for your salvation? Here's number three. I want you to notice the groom smiling at the end of the aisle or at the altar and remember that God joyfully receives you. So, so one of my jobs when I officiate a wedding is to go up and stand there. I'm usually the first there, and everyone kind of looks at me like, who's this fellow, right? And I'm just kind of standing there. And then the groom comes up, and everyone's pumped because the groom is really like, he's the guy getting married, right? And then all the wedding party comes up, and then if you've ever been to any wedding ever, the last person to enter the room is the bride. Everyone stands up, and of course, everyone looks at the bride, but then there's like 25 to 30% of the room who always does this. They're looking at the bride and then they look over at the groom, and then they look back at the bride, and then they look at the groom, and there's all this pressure on the groom, okay? Guys, I'm just gonna say this out loud. All kinds of pressure on you, because you're standing there just with your face, but everyone wants your face to look a certain way. And I've talked to guys who are like, I don't think I'm gonna cry, and I'm like, it's okay if you don't, sorry, this is totally off topic. But anyway, the groom's standing there, and sometimes he cries, and sometimes his face looks amazing, and sometimes his face just looks like his face, okay? And he's standing there. But here's what he's doing. He's staring at his bride, and he's smiling. Like, like the man has never been up on the altar, at least during a wedding I've done, been up there and be like, her again. No, right? No one does that. He doesn't stand up there and be like, oh, she is so frustrating, right? He just smiles, and his bride is walking down the aisle. Listen to me, next time you make eyes with the groom standing up there on, on the altar, can you just remember that your God looks at you exactly like that? Not as your sins deserve, not as a wicked, wretchful, terrible, awful, no good person who can't stop sinning and can't stop stumbling. The God of the universe stands there waiting for you to come with a smile on his face. The scriptures say you are chosen, like God wanted you. You are holy. God sees you as perfect as he sees his son. He says you are dearly loved. Whatever smile, whatever tears, whatever joy you see on the groom standing there as his bride comes down the aisle, it is nothing compared to the love that your heavenly father has for you as he waits for you to come to him and be with him forevermore in heaven. I want you to notice the groom and I want you to understand the depth of your God's love for you. Number four, I want you to notice the bride beautifully dressed for her husband and remember that this is how your God sees us now. In every culture, there's a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. You'll actually notice in the scripture we read, it just says beautifully dressed. In other places, it'll say fine linen that's clean. It doesn't necessarily mean a white dress, but in our culture, it's almost always a white dress. It's the best linen. It's the best dress. She's beautifully dressed. This isn't a uniquely us thing. This is every wedding ever. 
The bride is beautifully dressed for her husband. In fact, the scripture is going to use this metaphor at one point to say that, that the fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's people. Like in other words, when God looks at you, he sees you as beautiful as a bride on her wedding day. That perfect, glowing brilliance that every bride who walks down the aisle has, that's how God sees you. And some of you have convinced yourself that God sees you as this filthy wretch who no one would ever want. Some of you think that God looks at you and just kind of turns up his nose and is upset with you. But God doesn't see you as your sins deserve. He sees you as cloaked and clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. Like the whole point of the gospel is that God looks at you, not as you deserve, but he sees you like Jesus. And that's how he sees his bride. Beautiful, fine linen, spotless and clean. That's how God sees you. Every time you see a bride in her wedding dress, every time you see the beauty of a bride on her wedding day, I want you to remember that's exactly how God sees you. Here's the next one. I want you to notice the vows at the wedding and remember that God has made vows to us. I want you to notice the vows at the wedding. I always tell people that I'm marrying, I want you to understand this, that the vows are the only part of the wedding you have to do, okay? That's what I tell people. The vows are the only part of the wedding. Every other part of the wedding is window dressing. The vows matter. Listen, like the rings and the kiss and the cake and the dance and the shoe and the this and the that, all that stuff is cute. A wedding at its core. I don't know what the shoe was, by the way. I don't, I'm just going to move on from that. All right, listen. At its core, a wedding is a series of promises that are made to one another, before one another and before God Almighty. Listen to me. Um, it's gotten really popular uh, because of movies and TV to have wedding vows that aren't really vows. I just want you to listen for that at some point when the wedding vow is like, I love you and I care about you and I love watching TV shows with you and you're my person. And it's just like all these things and at the end they never actually promised anything. And like that's cute and beautiful but that's not actually a vow. A vow is a promise. And all of the weddings I was in the last three months, there were promises made. I'm with you till the end. I'm all in for you. I'm faithful to you for better or for worse till death do us part, right? A vow is not, listen to this, a vow is not a declaration of present love. A vow is a promise of future love. Let me say that again. A vow is not a declaration of your present love. It is a promise of your future love. And I wonder if anyone here needs to know that God makes a vow to you and his vow to you is not just that he loves you now, it's that he'll love you later when you're at your worst. God promises not just to love you now. He promises to love you two years from now when you've stopped reading your Bible. He promises to love you five years from now when you've wandered from church a little bit. He promises to love you 10 years from now when you've committed a sin you don't think God could ever forgive you for. Listen, a vow is not a declaration of present love. It's a promise of future love. And how epic is it that God has vowed his future love to you and me? That no matter what we do, God says, I'm in. For better or for worse, for richer or poorer, in good times and in bad, God says not even death can separate us from the vow I've made for you. The next one is this. I want you to notice the unity of the wedding guests and remember that heaven is complete unity in Christ. <laughs> one of my favorite things about a wedding is you're like there and everyone seems to be cool with everyone else, right? You're at a wedding. It's almost like when you're at a professional athletic event, like you're at a football game and someone scores a touchdown and you're like slapping five with people you would never speak to on the street. You're hugging strangers, right? That's what happens at a wedding, right? You're like there and you're watching the wedding and everyone's trying to be polite. But then later on, you're like eating and drinking and laughing and dancing with these total strangers. And it's totally cool because you're all there for one reason, right? 
Like really, you're at a wedding, you ever thought about that? Like you're all there enjoying each other's company, but you probably disagree on everything. On politics, on worldview, on what you think, on what you like, on tastes, on what movie shows or different things. Like whatever you think, you disagree on so many things. But you're all unified because it's not about those things. It's about the one couple that's there. You're unified around the love of the couple. You know that's what the church is supposed to be? Like the church is not supposed to be a place where we all come in. We're like, we all agree on everything. No, the church is supposed to be this place where we're like, you don't agree with you or you or you or me, but we're all here around Jesus. And that's what heaven is ultimately going to be. Listen, heaven is not going to be filled with people who agree with you on everything. Heaven is going to be filled with people who love Jesus and have submitted their lives to him. That's what a wedding points us toward. Like the next time you're at a wedding and you just feel so comfortable with everyone around you, remember that the unity comes not from within inside of you, but from something you've all got your attention on. Next one is this. Notice the celebrating, eating, drinking, and dancing. And remember that heaven is described as a wedding feast. Heaven all throughout the Bible is described as the wedding supper of the Lamb, the wedding supper of Jesus. This is the best news the best news in the entire universe, that this is how a wedding is described. Like, I want you to think of the last wedding you were at and how fun it was. Maybe you've been at a disastrous wedding, I have. But I want you to imagine the fun one. I want you to imagine the great one, the one where you were hanging out, the one where you were dancing, the one where you were laughing, where there was good food and good wine and good joy and good people and good dancing. Not like, mm, dancing, like, oh yeah, that was awesome dancing, like that kind of wedding. That's how heaven is described. Heaven's described as a wedding feast. Like, I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, I was told about heaven and hell. And hell sounded really bad, because it is. And heaven didn't sound much better, but it sounded better than hell. Because the way heaven was in my mind was like, I go up and float up to heaven, and they give me a harp, which I don't know how to play, and wings, which, oh, cool, I guess. But all I get to do is sit on a cloud forever. And that didn't sound fun at all. And you know what it was? It's because I bought into some cultural notion of what heaven was rather than what the Bible says. Here's what the Bible says. The most fun wedding you've ever been to that you didn't want to end, that's heaven. And yet it's never going to end. It's going to go on for all of eternity, eating and drinking and celebrating and dancing and rejoicing in the wedding supper of the Lamb. Next time you're having a good time at a wedding, can you just pause for a moment and recognize that heaven is going to be 100 million times better than what you're doing right now? And yet so beautiful. Here's um, number eight. Um, notice the centrality of love at a wedding. And remember that heaven is a place of healing. So not in the weddings I went to in the last three weeks, but I remember a couple years ago I went to a wedding uh, and I bumped into a guy that I hadn't seen in a long time. And to say we had like a fight or a falling out would be too dramatic, but we had kind of gone our different ways. There had been some differences, some tension, some friction, some issues between me and this guy, and we hadn't seen each other in a long time. But there we were at the wedding we bumped into each other because we had to, and then we started talking, and we started catching up, and then we started laughing and reminiscing on the good times. We ended up sitting down at a table and like catching up about life and everything that had happened and everywhere I was and my family and his family. It was a healing moment, and it was a healing moment that probably only could have happened at a wedding because if not, if I had just seen him in like even the church lobby, I would have been like, I'm going the other way, right? Like I wouldn't have done it. I wouldn't have made peace with him, and yet that's what happens at a wedding. You make peace. Relationships are rebuilt. You see people you haven't seen in forever. That's the joy of weddings for me now. I go to weddings, I'm like, I haven't seen you in years, and we rekindle that friendship. Listen, that's heaven. The centrality of love in heaven allows for healing in the deepest wounds of the human heart. And again, I don't know what those wounds are for you. I don't know if you walk through, 
But the next time you're at a wedding and you just feel like things have been healed up and sealed up in your heart, I want you to remember because it's a reflection of what eternity is going to be like. Number nine, I want you to notice that just for a moment, the brokenness of the world fades. And I want you to remember that in heaven, that lasts forever. So the last wedding I was at, the, the Hippler wedding, um, the night before we were at the rehearsal dinner, uh, and Michelle Hippler, the, the mother of the groom, gets up. And here's what she said. It was so beautiful. She said, you know what? We live in a broken world full of pain and heartache and brokenness and suffering and death. She says, but can I tell you something? For a moment tomorrow, for a moment tomorrow, may you experience perfection. She toasts the bride and groom and says, tomorrow, in an imperfect and broken world, may you just have a taste, just have a moment of perfection on your wedding day. And that touched me so deeply because I sat there thinking about it, that if it's true that at a wedding we can have just a taste of perfection, just an ounce of that perfect world that God created for us, how much more so will heaven be that? That ounce of perfection, those moments you experience where it just feels like everything's right with the world, and it lasts for just a moment. The Bible promises that in heaven it lasts not just for a moment, but for all of eternity. What a beautiful thought that that perfect moment at a wedding would not end in heaven, but rather last for all of the ages to come. Number 10, and this will be our final one. I want you to notice that the wedding day is just the beginning of the story. And remember that every day in heaven will be a beginning too. Like, don't we love that about weddings? It's like the start of a new family, a new journey. They're at the wedding. They drive off in the car and there's sparklers and everyone's like, yay. All right, let's go home. Right? Like, that's what we do. But we celebrate the fact that this new family has started. They're going on their honeymoon. Maybe there's kids someday. Maybe there's a house someday, a career, a whole life ahead of them. So here's what you know at weddings. There's more ahead of them than there is behind them, right? And here's what's true about heaven. Every single morning when you wake up in heaven, there will be more ahead of you than there is behind you. Every single morning when you wake up in heaven, there will be more life and joy and delight and celebration ahead of you than there is behind you. Like this is where the song Amazing Grace said it so perfectly. It said, when we've been there in heaven 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, it says we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Like in other words, heaven is just the delight and joy of 10,000 years only to know that that stretches on into eternity. So listen, I hope tonight in some small but significant way changes the way you look at weddings. Because weddings are not random. Weddings are not even cultural. Weddings are created since the beginning of the world. The weddings be- wedding began all of creation and all of creation will end in a wedding. Like let me give you a final image to think about when you think about weddings. Can I tell you this? Can you remember that a wedding is a telescope? A wedding's a telescope. Now, that doesn't sound romantic at all. I get that, all right? Some groom's like, will you be at my telescope? Right now, don't do that. But here's what it is. What does a telescope do? A telescope allows us to see something far off as if it were near, and it allows us to see details of something we could never see on our own. That's what a wedding does. Heaven is far off, and yet this wedding allows us to see it as if it's close to us. And heaven is something that's hard to wrap your mind around. But when you see a wedding and you start to understand this is what heaven is like, you can start to see the details of what your eternity is going to look like. I cannot overstate how important it is to say in the Bible, heaven is described as a wedding. The very beginning of creation is a wedding. And all of heaven is described as the marriage supper of the Lamb. Here's what it says in verse 3 of chapter 21. It says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be their God. 
In other words, heaven's a wedding. And what's going to happen? God's going to gather his wedding guests. He's going to gather his wedding party. And you, child of God, who has called upon the name of the Lord and been saved, you are part of the wedding party. It says God's dwelling places with his people. He dwells with them. God is their God. I, I love the fact that when we point to heaven and when we think about heaven, we consider it as a wedding, as a metaphor, as a beautiful picture of what heaven is going to be like. And if that's true, if it's true that God's going to be with us and we're going to be with him, it means that the aches and pains of this world will one day be no more. The aches and pains of loneliness because you're single and you haven't been able to get into a relationship. The aches and pains of insecurity about your body or your relationship or your future or your past. The aches and pains of jealousy of someone else's relationship. The aches and pains of bitterness that you thought you'd be married by now or you thought you'd have kids by now. All of these normal human emotions again, get wrapped up and subsumed in this idea of marriage being a pointer toward heaven. Let me say it this way tonight, that marriage can bring some relief to loneliness, insecurity, jealousy, and bitterness. I just want you to know in a world that seems so down on marriage that marriage is this beautiful gift. Like, listen, I'm a married man, been married eight years. It's brought some relief to loneliness. It's brought some relief to some of my deepest insecurities with a wife who loves me and serves me and builds me up and points me to Jesus. It's brought some relief to the jealousy and bitterness that can so easily wrap up my heart and maybe your heart as well. But let me just be fully honest about marriage from the Bible and from my own experience. It doesn't take those things away fully. Let me tell you, I'm a married man and sometimes I feel lonely. It's not my wife's fault. It's the fact that we just live in a broken, fallen world. Like I'm a married man and sometimes I feel insecure. Sometimes I feel jealous, jealous of someone else's marriage, jealous of someone else's life and their family and what's going on, bitter about something I feel like I missed out on. Listen, marriage can help bring healing to these things. Marriage can help move you forward. Marriage can even help you grow through these. But I wanna be extraordinarily clear tonight. Only heaven will bring them to an end. Only heaven brings the loneliness and insecurity and bitterness and jealousy that warps us when it comes to relationships to an end. So marriage is a good gift of God, but it is not the ultimate gift of God. The ultimate gift of God is not my marriage to Danny, but rather the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's where we're heading. It says this in verse 4. It says, he, this is God, will wipe every tear from their eyes. Just in case you thought God was some cold, distant deity, you know how he describes God in the end? His finger comes down and wipes tears away from your face. It says, there will be no more death, nor mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Well, one of the things I love about the Bible, it is never shy about calling out the brokenness and pain and heartache of this world. The pain and brokenness and heartache that all of you have experienced, especially in the space of romantic relationships, dating, sex, singleness, and marriage. Listen, I'm just aware in this room, in all of these subjects, how much pain gets ripped up from the breakups, from the betrayal, from the confusion, from the abuse, from the heartache, from everything that's been laid on you as you've gone through your romantic and sexual and marriage and dating life, everything that's happened. I just want to be aware of all of this brokenness. And here's what I want you to know. Once again, marriage is this good gift. Listen, marriage can help you heal from the pain of breakups and betrayal and abuse and heartache. A safe, healthy, God-honoring, loving marriage can help you heal from some of these things. It helps you heal from some of the aches and the pains of this world. It's a good gift of God in a broken world. 
But once again, let us never pretend even for a moment that marriage is the ultimate thing. Because you could be married for 40, 50, 60 years and still deal with the pain of abuse and betrayal and heartache and pain and bitterness. Listen, only heaven will bring full healing. Marriage is a good thing, but it is not the ultimate thing. The ultimate thing marriage points us toward is the reality of heaven where God wipes every tear from our eye. No more death, no more mourning, no more crying. And listen to me, no more pain, no more heartaches, no more insecurity about your body or why he didn't text back or what she said or what he did to you or how he harmed you. There's nothing more. It's all wiped away. It's all undone in the mystery of God's goodness and God's love. And then here's the final verse we're gonna look at. In verse five, it says, he who is seated on the throne said this, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. You'll see right here in the middle of it, the one who's seated on the throne, Jesus, God in heaven says, I am making everything new. Our our band is gonna make their way up right now. We're gonna sing a song and the bridge of that song says, Jesus, you make all things new. When you sing that tonight, I want you to sing that not in some sort of vague sense, but in the reality that Jesus is actually going to make all things new. He's actually going to do away with pain and heartache and betrayal and the aches of this world. He's actually going to invite you into the wedding supper of the lamb. You will actually be in a heaven where there is eating and drinking and dancing and celebrating forever about the mercy of Christ and the gospel that he extends to us. I want you to remember that Jesus actually makes all things new. And because he makes all things new, can I just remind you of the truth we started with tonight? Here's the truth, that singleness, dating, marriage, and sex, they're all temporary. They're all temporary. They're all just here for us in the interim between now and when Jesus Christ returns. They're all until Jesus returns. But believe me, everyone listening to me, believe me, those of you online, there will come a day where Jesus Christ returns in glory to judge the living and the dead. The Bible says on that day, Jesus will crack the sky and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. On that day when Jesus Christ returns, he will put all of his enemies under his feet. He will defeat sin, death, hell, and the devil himself. And when he has put away all of his enemies, he will make all things new. He will undo the curse. He will take away all of the pain and he will resurrect this world, including you and your body. I want you to know that your eternal state is not you floating away to go be in heaven. It's that heaven's coming here to resurrect all things. I want you to understand that dating and singleness and sex and marriage is all pointing toward that day when Jesus Christ returns to make all things new. And when you've been raised and all of this universe has been raised with you, you and me will be at the wedding supper of the Lamb where we will celebrate and rejoice in the mercy and the kindness of our God and his Christ now and forevermore. Let me remind you tonight that singleness, dating, marriage, and sex are all temporary, but Jesus, heaven, and eternal bliss are permanent. That's the promise to you. The permanence of Jesus, the permanence of heaven, and the permanence of this eternal bliss. Listen, some of you are aching with the pain of being single right now. Let me remind you, it's temporary. 
Even if you go through this entire life and never find someone to marry, I want you to know that this life is just a breath. It's just a moment. It's the fog in a morning that disappears. Fellowship with Jesus is forever. For those of you who are dating or engaged and you have this wonderful relationship and you're just trying to see if you can get it toward marriage, I want you to know it is a good, beautiful gift in this world. For those of you who are married, I want you to know that marriage is one of the best gifts that God gave us. But even my marriage to Danny, which I hope takes me till death do us part, it's just temporary. It's not the ultimate. What we want to remember is that the ultimate thing is Jesus, an eternal heaven, and an eternal bliss that's offered to all of us. So how do we wrap up a series on dating, sex, singleness, and marriage? We remember that none of those things are the ultimate things. We remember that those things are always about another thing. Those things are always about something else, and that something is a someone, and that someone is Jesus Christ, the resurrected one who is returning to make all things new. Tonight, in just a moment, we're getting an opportunity to sing about that Christ who invites you into the wedding supper of the Lamb and says, I will make all things new. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I want to thank you for tonight. God, I just want to pause right now and recognize the vast differences in this room. God, for the young woman who's single and just aching, wanting to be in a relationship, for the young man who's single and just feels like he's never going to be good enough. God, I pray you would bring peace to their hearts. God, I want to boldly pray you would bring the right person into their life. That's what you have for them. God, I pray you would bring that person, bring peace, bring them the solace of knowing someone who will love them and serve them and make them more like Jesus in this world. For those who are dating or engaged or listening right now who are married, God, I pray that you would allow them to see their marriage not as the ultimate thing in this world, but rather as a magnifying glass that shows them heaven. And God, that wedding supper of the Lamb that you promised, you talk about in your scriptures, that wedding supper of the Lamb that we look forward to, God, I long for that day. I believe for that day. And God, I pray that every time I see a wedding between now and then until Jesus comes, that I would have confidence that that's where I'm heading. God, it's all about you. You make all things new. We praise you because of this. And we pray it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said.